I am David McNitsky. I'm uh, one of the pastors, the senior pastor here at Alamo Heights. Most of the time I am uh, down the hall and I noticed that between services they put up a picture of the sanctuary. They tell me perhaps I'd feel more at home. But I want you to know that's not a problem. Um, I always feel at home in, uh, in your presence because we are all one family. There are some that come to our campus and don't feel at home uh, automatically uh, before they even get into uh, here in the gym or before they even get into the sanctuary. And this fall, we want to start working on what happens from the parking lot until you get into our building and what happens when you leave. If you're interested in that effort as we try to make um, not just in the services but outside and between the services more a home. I hope that uh, you'll let either Troy Dunn know, who leads uh, the effort, um, who's going to spearhead this effort, or um, if you don't know Troy, if you'll let um, Matt know when he's back in here next week, we'll start working on that this fall. But I'm glad to be among you and to be home. As we come uh, to the scriptures this morning, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and they're having problems when they gather for the Lord's Supper. So if you'll stand, we'll read together about those problems. It is a lengthy scripture, so if you get uncomfortable, you're welcome to be seated at any point. This is chapter 11, if you'll read along with me. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I'm not going to touch that last verse. I got here in 1995, and for the first couple of years... I was, as the new senior pastor, uh, San Antonio's guest, and I got invited to uh, private uh, dinner parties where it was kind of a meet-the-pastor deal. And then I started getting invited to uh, charity fundraisers, and uh, they would have me do the in, um, invocation. And uh, as I did this for a couple of years, I noticed two things. The first thing is I noticed I gained 15 pounds. 
uh, most of which still remains. But the second thing is I noticed is I wasn't in Kansas anymore, uh, in a sense, because the way that these charity banquets and dinners and fundraisers functioned was different than the large dinners to which I was accustomed, which are usually more like family reunions. They were a little different. In fact, I remember one in particular. I was so excited because Colin Powell, General Colin Powell, Secretary of State Colin Powell, was going to be the guest speaker for this particular fundraiser. And I got there and found I was at the head table seated on the right side of Colin Powell. And so I uh, did the uh, invocation, took my seat at the head table. Colin Powell thanked me because it was only 30 seconds long. He said, you'll make a great Episcopalian. So I thanked him. And then he turned and didn't talk to me for the next two hours. He kept talking to the guy on his left, George W. Anyway, he was the governor and later became the president. The whole time we talked to him. And then I noticed the head table ate first. And then everybody else, and then everybody else who ate had to pay to eat. And then the people that were serving them, well, I never saw them eat at all. You know, that's different than we kind of do when our families gather to eat. I mean, we talk to each other, in fact, maybe too much. No distinctions are made from the great-grandfather to the great-grandchild. In our family gatherings, everybody gets abused. Everybody gets, gets talked to. And with, in fact, there's no head table. The children usually eat first and then the elderly, then the rest of us. And everybody eats whether they brought any food to eat or not. It was completely different than the way I experienced these banquets. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It was just different. But do you know it was different in Paul's day too? In Paul's day, they also had very large banquets. And they usually were held in the home of a wealthy person. And at these banquets, like they would have had in Corinth, where we've been, in a sense, all summer metaphorically, in Corinth, at a wealthy person's house, there would be a small dining room, and they would have a U-shaped table called a triclinium, because it had like two end pieces and then the middle piece. You could seat anywhere from 9 to 12 people. It's quite likely that the Lord's Supper was uh, at a triclinium um, table, even though I know the painting shows everybody on one side. I think they just gathered there for the painting. But um, anyway, but typically 9 to 12 people in that dining room, and those were the guests who were the highest social order. And then in the outer area, there might be chairs for some more, and then everybody else who's invited to the dinner stood. And the people in the center section, got the most and the best food and wine, and the people in the outer sections got what was left over when everybody in the private dining room had finished. And uh, one uh, ancient commentator writing about this, his name was Pliny the Younger, uh, interesting name, um, uh, who comments on a lot of things in Rome of the first couple centuries, called it an elegant economy. He thought it was just really cool the way it worked, that the people that were the highest class got the best and got there first, and then everything else got distributed until it, until it ran out. And those, when it ran out, were just, I guess, glad to be there, and then they went home to eat. And uh, it's a little bit like when you're flying on an airplane. Have you ever had that experience when you're in economy and they draw the curtain? None shall pass. <laughs> no one is going into first class. There's a, a clear social distinction in the banquets. In Corinth, or in the Greco-Roman world, were that way. But here's the problem. When God's people in Corinth got into a house, and since there were no such thing as church buildings at that time, they met in people's homes, usually the wealthier people with the larger homes that could gather the most for worship. 
And they came to Lord's Supper. They did it just like that. And the higher class, wealthier members were in the private dining room. And maybe they got there first because they didn't have to work for a living like the day laborers. Or maybe they were just escorted there. But they were there in that private section and they got the best food and the best wine. And everybody else who came to the Lord's Supper got what was left over, if anything. And so Paul says, what happens is a number of you are full and even drunk. They almost have to carry you out. And then everybody else goes home hungry. Paul had a problem with that. Paul didn't think that the Lord's Supper ought to operate in the same manner as a dinner banquet in Corinth. Because he thought that the metaphor was not a banquet of, uh, of social classes gathered and separated by, dis- uh, by distinction. He thought the metaphor was a family. He said, I want to pass this on. This is what we got from Jesus. And he said he took the bread and then broke it and said, this is my body. And then he took the cup. And passed it. And when they thought back, they realized, oh yeah, there were like 12 people. And all of them ate equally and drank equally. In fact, even Judas, who was going to betray Jesus right after that meal. In fact, in one account, during the meal, got to eat before he left to betray him. Everyone participated because it was a family and they had done life together for these three years. And Paul envisions that when the church gathers, it's going to be more like a family and less like a social gathering in Corinth. And so family becomes, I think, for him, a controlling um, metaphor. And uh, Pastor Scott Hare, who leads our North Campus at Riverside, said years ago when he was a pastor in Garland, he took the youth group uh, to uh, a Sabbath, a Shabbat service on a Friday night in a synagogue in Dallas. And uh, the rabbi knew they were coming, so he saw the Christians gathered in the back. And so before it started, he goes to the youth group and he says, uh, any of you look around, know what's missing? And of course, one of them right away, the cross. Well, yeah. Okay, anything else? Did you notice we don't have an altar table, said the rabbi. He said, because that's because in our faith, the kitchen table is the altar. Because a lot of the worship of God is in family. And even the Passover meal, if you look at the Old Testament, you had a lamb if your whole family could eat the lamb. And if not, you'd gather another family and you would share around the lamb. The controlling metaphor was family and in families. Everybody eats, and there aren't distinctions between the haves and the have-nots. And we don't just talk to certain people. We talk with everyone. Now, let me pause for a moment to say the family, because it's a metaphor, doesn't mean that our gatherings are perfect. Because any of us who's ever been a family, and I guess that's all of us, knows that by definition, pretty much families aren't. Um, perfect. Uh, and so um, I think about some of the family um, opportunities that we've had. At one point, uh, when we only had two children, the oldest one was four, the youngest one was a baby, and my wife remembers the oldest one at dinner talked nonstop. Nonstop. And then the baby cried nonstop. And so at this family meal, at one point, my wife just says, Couldn't we have five minutes of silence? And then as they grew up and we added a third to them, then there's lots of talk between them and all sorts of debates and argument. And I turned to my wife one night and said, you know, family dinners are overrated. <laughs> but families aren't perfect. I remember Elizabeth Gilbert, Eat, Pray, Love, who, who once said this. She said, the reason your family knows 
how to punch your buttons is because they're the ones who installed them. There's just something that's not perfect. And God's family wasn't meant to be perfect, but there are some differences. There are some differences. When our family gathers together at Christmas time for a family reunion, it's not perfect. And there's lots of harassment from the oldest down uh, to the youngest. And this year we had a problem because um, uh, one of my nephews is a history teacher and history buff. And he announced that he had done the research. And in fact, we all thought Magnitsky was German, Machnitsky. And he announced to all of us at this dinner that we were Polish. Well, that caused quite some consternation. Forced my wife to go home and join Ancestry.com to try to sort this thing out. Well, we... We think we've established that we're Prussian for what that's worth, but it was just, uh, that's how family members go. And if it gets a little slow, my brother and I know how to punch my sister's buttons. And so we will throw out a particular topic that we know will get them both wound up. But we're family and we all eat together and we all share the same story. We're all Magnitsky's. And everyone who gathered in Corinth, Paul's trying to remind them, is you all share the same story too. Because the Lord's Supper, as you know, is actually Jesus' celebration or adaptation of the Passover, which is a story. And in the Passover story, the only social distinction was the Egyptians and all the Hebrew slaves. And all the slaves escaped from Pharaoh. They escaped As a unity, as one body, they escaped with no distinction between slave and free because they were now all free. Their controlling story is one of equality. Their controlling story is one of unity. And so Paul says, and you sit down at the table, whatever you're celebrating, I don't know what it is, but it's not the Lord's Supper. Because when we sit and eat, we celebrate a family story where distinctions are not drawn between upper class and lower class, between uh, white and non-white, between male and female, those who worship with an organ and those who worship with a keyboard, those who interpret this Bible verse that way and those who interpret it this way. Those distinctions are bogus. They are illusion. The story we share is that we all got out together and we're all one. And so Paul is greatly troubled that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that says we're not one. There's first class and there's economy. And Paul is greatly troubled by this. So much so that he threatens them. He said, you know, the way that y'all celebrate the the Lord's Supper, his body and his blood, you're going to end up eating and drinking your own judgment. That's, uh, that's quite a threat. Now, what's interesting is I didn't do the King James for you this morning. If you go home, it'll say that you'll eat and drink to your own damnation, which is a little scary. And um, I went to school in the southeast at Duke, and one of the things we learned is in the southeast, in a Methodist or Baptist church on communion st- Sunday, a third of the people will stay home on that Sunday. And I always thought it was because maybe communion took too long. But you come to talk to some of the old timers in the church, and they were afraid if they messed up communion and they didn't have the right heart or the right spirit, they were going to go to hell. They were afraid if they, weren't, they had to be morally worthy to receive communion. And some denominations even, even uh, codified this to where you had to be cleared by the pastor before you could receive communion the next day. So you had to come on a Friday and Saturday and, and be approved that you were morally worthy 
you'd been examined and you could take communion. In fact, uh, uh, some of the early um, Anglicans in the 13 colonies did this. And so the Methodist founder, John Wesley, when he was still Anglican, was a rector. And that was his job before communion was to examine everybody and make sure they were worthy. Well, he fell in love with a woman in Savannah. Her name was Sophie Hopke. They got engaged. They broke the engagement in the middle of the week. So when it came time for her appointment with him to be morally cleared, for some reason she decided not to show. So, but she did show for communion. So Wesley's serving communion, and he serves the person next to her and serves the person around her and goes on. Now, what he did was theologically wrong, but on top of that, it was just politically stupid because her uncle was the mayor of Savannah. And he saw to it that Wesley and his brother were run out of town. They went back to England and started a new denomination within a couple of years. Uh, But that's part of where this comes from, that we think we have to be cleared for communion. That when we come to communion, we have to make sure we're pure or we can't take it. That's not what Paul meant. Discerning the body was realize you're one body. You ought to examine yourself and say, if I feel like I'm greater than the person next to me, that I deserve something they don't, then you've got it messed up. You've missed that you are part of a body. You are all one. And communion may be the most unified and democratic time in our nation, as split as we are in so many ways, because when everybody comes to communion, they are, by definition, equal. Uh, The guy that supervised my doctoral thesis so many years ago, old-time Presbyterian pastor, and uh, he used to say, and Texan, he would say, the two most democratic events in the United States of America are a Willie Nelson concert and communion because neither one have reserved seats. We're all part of that together, of that family. And what's interesting, what happened was the church must have listened to Paul because we know from tradition that eventually in the churches they started to turn Greco-Roman society upside down because they would have these meals where the poor might eat before the rich and in fact the servant might even be served by his master in real life. Communion first. And these social distinctions began to tear at the very fabric of Roman society and turn it upside down because they listened to Paul. They figured out that, in fact, they were all one. And I just wonder what might happen if the church took that message seriously again. That whether we were old or young, white or not white, biblically conservative, biblically progressive, sing from a hymnal, sing from a screen, live on northwest side of town or northeast or south side, if we realize that, in fact, we were all one, how might that change our society? The thing about it is that so often, and I read about this in the devotional this morning, which I thought was timely, that men tend to want to compete with each other and women tend to want to compare themselves with one another. And both of those They're like out the window at communion. There's no competition. We're in this together, and no one is better than anybody else. We are all loved and equally valued. But it's a hard message. Even the most religious have difficulty learning this message. Story is told shortly after the day of Jesus of a rabbi and his students, and the three brightest students were in discussion with the rabbi. And the discussion was, 
when does night end and day begin? And that's important to a Jew because there are certain prayers you say at night and there are certain prayers that you say when morning comes. And so the rabbi asked the question. One says, well, I know. He said, it's, we're walking along and I can distinguish my field from my neighbor's field and then it's daylight. No, said the rabbi. So the next one takes a guess said, I know what it is. It's when walking along and I can distinguish between my house and my neighbor's house. No, said the rabbi. Pressure's on the third one, he thinks. And he says, okay, it's when at a distance I can tell the difference between a cow and a donkey. Then it is daylight. And the rabbi's exasperated, and he said, why do all three of you insist on specializing in distinctions? Is that all you can do is draw distinctions between things? And he went on to lecture them and says, this is when it is no longer night. When you can look at the face of a stranger and see your brother or sister, then the darkness has listed and night is no more. Communion is a time when we see the light. And in the light, we recognize one another as our brother and our sister. Pray with me. We bless you, O Lord, our God, for all that you've done for us in the life and death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We remember that on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and after giving you thanks and blessing you, took the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, our Lord Jesus blessed you and gave thanks over the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood poured out for you and many for the forgiveness of sins. So gracious and loving God, we call on your Holy Spirit again to come upon this bread and this cup and make them be for us as the body and blood of Christ. And pour your Holy Spirit upon each of us that we might overcome our distinctions and be one body in you redeemed by your blood. All this we ask in the name of your Son, and we pray together the prayer he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.